0: Thank you for listening to the warning podcast. If you like the conversation you hear today, please consider subscribing to the warning premium. It's our membership program that offers members immediate access to the conversation you're about to hear ad free. You'll also get additional content, including monthly ask me anything sessions, weekly civics discussions on topics relevant to today and exclusive conversations. Please sign up at the warning.supercast.com. That's the warning, thewarning.supercast.com. That's thewarning, supercast. gsupercastcom Thewarning.supercast.com or at the link in the show notes section below. Really thrilled to be joined this afternoon by Malcolm Nance, a figure that is familiar to a great many of you who are watching, uh, who've taken the time to join us. Uh, So I just want to get right into it. Uh, Malcolm Nance is an E-8, a retired U.S. Navy senior chief. Um, Malcolm, why don't you tell us what it means to be a senior chief in the U.S. Navy uh, about that rank and specifically how important those enlisted ranks are to the functioning of the U.S. Navy, to the military uh, from a comparative advantage perspective over our global adversaries, both the Chinese and the Russians, one of which you've gotten an up-close look at that we'll talk more about as we have the conversation deep in this afternoon. But welcome, real pleasure to have you with us.
1: Well, well, thank you, and especially thank you for asking me what a senior chief petty officer is. First off, a senior chief petty officer or any chief petty officer in the U.S. Navy is a god. Uh, we, and if you ask anyone in the Navy, there's unlike the Army, Air Force and the rest, there are enlisted people. These are the people who are the junior people that come in from the bottom, starting at E1 at boot camp, and they work their way up to the maximum you can go is E9, uh, which is master chief petty officer. Uh, then there comes the officer ranks, which starts at 01 and goes up to, well, however many officers have when you get to the top admiral. However, the Navy since 1892 plays it a little different because ships required and sailing boats required technical experts who never leave the Navy, right? Old guys with the, you know, the long wispy beards, uh, that, that they call the old goats. And in fact, where, are Navy chiefs hang out, or it's called the goat locker. And Navy chiefs are different because in the Navy, we officially have three rank structures unlike the rest. It's enlisted, which is E1 to E6, right? Officers, O1 to whatever, then chiefs, which is a different world. And we wear khaki uniforms like the officers, but we come from the deck plates with the enlisted guys, and we know everything. (laughs) It's as simple as that. We are, we are the enlisted gods. So we always say that, and you have a complete change of attitude, mindset, uniform. There's even an initiation when you go from first-class petty officer to Navy chief petty officer. They burn your old uniforms. They put you in these new khaki uniforms. You swear an oath to each other. It's really awesome. The Army and the Marine Corps and the, and the, and the other services have the same core, the senior enlisted core. This is the hard body of the best, most practical people with experience. Good example. Um, If you want to join Delta Force, U.S. Army's top, the combined arms group, you want to join the most top elite commando force in the world, they only have a couple of officers. Everyone is an E-7 and above. You have to be an Army Sergeant first class, an Army Master Sergeant or army sergeant major to be in that group. And that means when they're killing you, you're getting killed by the most experienced people in the world. Same thing with SEAL Team Six, mainly Navy chiefs. Um, so uh, the chief corps, the chief community is what we call the deck plate leadership uh, as it exists in the Navy. My family, uh, there have been seven of us, plus my father in the Navy. Uh, let me tell you, well, all my brothers. Uh, my father was a Navy Master Chief, Boiler Tech, which is in the old steam-filled engine rooms of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. My brother was a Navy Senior Chief, Nuke, which means he was working in the nuclear engineering, the reactor rooms of submarines and uh, sh- nuclear-powered ships. And I am a Navy cryptologist, cryptologic technician interpretive, which means that I'm a foreign language specialist within the cryptologic intelligence world, which really goes a lot of different places. I've done ship collection, submarine collection, collected from hotel rooms, worked at NSA and special operations cryptology as well. So that body of knowledge of people who have, you know, on average 12 to 20 or more years of experience, you know, the officers get killed. We generally know how to make things go.
0: And so you spent you spent how long in the U.S. Navy? Twenty years.
1: Twenty years in the Navy. How much of that time was spent at sea? Oh, I have because I come from one of these funny branches where we don't ever get assigned to ships because we're so, so highly specialized, right? Arabic linguists, uh, Arabic interpreters, uh, and working subordinate to NSA or loaned out to other A's, uh, we only visit ships. But I visited a boatload. I have three years combined sea duty, uh, just visiting ships one week, two weeks, three weeks at a time, which and means that's a lot of short trips. So I have about three years on ships, submarines and other auxiliary and special operations.
0: And is that something you've enjoyed over the course of your career, being at sea, waking up, say in the ocean, splay out before you, watching the sun rise and go
1: down? Yeah, I mean you're you're on the sea, you know, the navy's motto and I'm actually getting this tattooed on my forearm. Uh is forged by the sea. And that's true. That's true. Everything you do, whether it's silly routines like when I was young and thought I was something important because I spoke a foreign language. You know, good chiefs made me sweep the hallways every day three times a day just to remind me that if you don't have a clean hallway, fire can start. Things can catch fire, uh, and you could destroy a ship. Or they would make me move food and ammunition just to break me of my attitude and show me that I was a sailor. And I loved that. When I when I when I became a chief, I realized the 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 forging characteristics of being at sea, seeing the ocean, watching dolphins race your ship, right? Um, and even more fun being on submarines where someone loans me. I used to do submarine special operations. I was the, the mission chief where they would give me a billion dollar atomic powered submarine and I would go somewhere and do something with it. Um, so that that was fun. But you learn so much. You travel so much. You get to see interesting places. And, and you know, uh, I mean, come on. I went to Monaco when I was 19, you know, Monte Carlo on a warship. You know, so the, the Navy itself in that experience, which the other services have equivalent things, but they generally stay in one place, is a very expeditionary force. So you're always going somewhere.
0: The so 20 years of service in the United States Navy, but not your most recent military service.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I always make this joke that uh, that's not, not a joke. My family has been in almost nonstop active service since April 1864. And from my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather and his brother ran away from slavery in northern Alabama, joined a group called the First Alabama Volunteers, which was then mustered into the 111th U.S. Colored Troops. And so from that month till a month ago or so, almost two months ago, uh, there has been a nonstop chain of Nances in somebody's Armed forces. Until a couple of years ago, my niece retired. It was the U.S. armed forces. Now it's including the Ukrainian army, where where I was a member of the International Legion uh, of the Ukrainian Army. So uh, we have a lot of army in our. I don't ever say this out loud. We have a lot of army in my family from civil war and uh, civil war to World War One. My grandfather and his brother served in France in World War One. Then it was all Navy. So we until recently I didn't take a lot of credit for the army, but now I, I respect my my elders and, and I, I'm a I'm a big fan of army and navy except on army navy day.
0: Well, there's something there. You talked about the first Alabama volunteers as a as a footnote in history. The first volunteers of Alabama, you know, out of that union uh, unit was made up General Sherman's personal guard, uh, because because when you looked at that unit. Um, from deep Alabama, those men who stayed loyal to the Union um, could be trusted because they stayed loyal at at great cost over their families, their friends, their their peer pressure. Um, and one of the most storied army units in in American history that that rises up out of that. And an interesting corollary to the Civil War: there was there was no place that stayed loyal to the Confederacy from the South that was Hill Country. There were the mountain regions of those states. All of those places were loyal to the Union, including West Virginia, which was taken away from from Virginia as punishment for their for their disloyalty. But you, uh, Malcolm Nance, a loyal guy, um, put your money where your mouth is. Um, you see democracy threatened by this Russian aggression, this largest. Uh, Naked aggression since the end of the Second World War to take place on the European continent. And in the um, tradition of the Eagle Squadron, in the in the uh, tradition of the Lafayette, uh, let Guard Drill, mm-hmm. uh, there is the Ukrainian Legion and American volunteers, along with uh, people from all over the world, arrive in Ukraine uh, to fight. And to fight the
1: Russians, and you're one of those people. Yeah, interestingly enough, my my pedigree that I usually bring up on on television, because a lot of people they don't remember the Spanish Civil War, they can barely remember the the Flying Tigers, or you know, like you said, the Eagle sure. Squad, you know, Battle of Britain, and and uh, and the the and certainly not the Lafayette Escadrille all had another legacy that started with a foreign legionnaire. It was Eugene Boulard who was an African-American kid. He ran away from Georgia, went around the world as a boxer, ended up, he loved Paris. He wanted to go to Paris, ended up in Paris. World War I starts. He joins the French Foreign Legion for three years, wounded twice in the Ver- Battle of the Salmon, and then gets selected to become the first black pilot, not in the U.S. Army. He was a French pilot that was assigned with the foreigners of the Lafayette group. Uh, The Escadrille was, you know, of Eddie Rickenbacker and all of them. They were all white pilots, but they were part of a flying group. First attributed black pilot uh, and um, an amazing character actually became a spy in World War II and got wounded again before leaving. That's the tradition I'm following. That guy understood the stakes. In World War One, of the land that he that he had adopted, he was a kid from Georgia, and he's like, oh, well, "I'm here. I'm gonna go fight." Right? Mm-hmm. When I was in Ukraine, I, it's the same thing. I, you know, I saw this country that I thought was supposed to be Eastern European, concrete, drab, and it wasn't. It was a very vibrant Western-style democracy. They had nine presidential elections that included re- uh, electing two pro-Moscow presidents, but they really want to be part of the West. I mean, you know, I mean, they, they have Mercedes everywhere and Tesla's all over the place. They did not want to be a vassal state to, to Russia and rebuilding the Iron Curtain. And, of course, Putin stealing 25 percent of the world's, you know, flower. So Russia obviously felt they were a threat, that democracy would infect Russia. And then they make up this whole fantasy story uh, about how it's full of Nazis. Right. You know, with a Jewish president. So, you know, Russia itself is the threat to this world. And while I was there, the month before the invasion, I was analyzing the Russian order of battle, where they would invade. It became very clear to me that this was going to be an existential war. And so I, I just couldn't abide that. That's why I, you know, I came home for a couple of days, grabbed all my military gear from my you know, previous wars and went back and joined the legion. Well, tell me where did you leave the United States from? You flew from.
0: Oh, I flew from New York City, and you, uh, and you uh, land. Where do you land in Europe?
1: Uh, I land in Warsaw.
0: Okay, and, and you uh, take a train over. Do you drive over? How do you get into Ukraine? Yeah, where do you present those,
1: yourself? A city called Zhuzhov that's only forty-five miles from the border, forty-five minutes of the border. Uh, but I flew to Warsaw, and you can take the train down to this town, Zhuzhov, a, city, Zuzhou, a beautiful medieval city and then when you turn left and you drive for 30 minutes you hit the Kram- uh, krakowets border crossing some people take the train and they go to medica and then once you cross the border from the polish side you get to the ukrainian side uh they ask you what you're coming for you have to use the code i'm here to help ukraine i'm here to assist ukraine i'm joining the legion and they go yay and they stamp you in and then you're interviewed by a special security officer to make sure you're not a Russian infiltrator. And then you go to the Legion tent. Now, I was a special case because I was very well known. Uh, the Ministry of Defense wanted to handle me personally. And uh, I was assigned to the Directorate of Military Intelligence, which is their version of the CIA.
0: Now, New York Times story that's out within the last couple mm-hmm. of days talking about this. So set the scene, right? Do You sure. have all manner of people that are arriving there's no quality control anyone can get on a plane from anywhere make it to warsaw make it to the border Mm -hmm. we have people that are lying about their resumes their service in the u.s military other military service are you able to pretty quickly as a 20 year senior navy chief uh, a navy uh, senior chief look at these people be able to tell this this person is not who they they claim to be. how does that how does that start to sort out right from the right from the beginning And then I was interested that the very very first thing and no surprise that that you try to do is you hit a military unit made up of a diverse group of people and foreigners is this is this is how we're going to operate. Uh, right. these are our core values. Uh, we must have these things. Uh, they are our moral glue. And so talk about that
1: if you would. Sure. Yeah, that the New York Times article was surprising to me simply in the sense that I think they used some of the wrong words, you know. They used stolen valor to to tar everyone there. These guys lied about their resume, but they actually surfed in Ukraine. Like, you know, James Vasquez, a very troubled individual. I'd met him twice while I was in Ukraine, but he became this internet sensation because he was showing his videos of him in combat. He was actually in combat, but early on in the war, there were people who were coming there, they would cross the border, they wouldn't report to the Legion. They would go into the town of Lviv, they would drink, they'd get on a train, they'd go to Kiev during the Battle of Kiev, and they would go to these territorial defense units. These were units that were stood up in like hours. One day they had two officers and you know, a cat, and the next day they were told, Here's 10,000 rifles, find 10,000 Ukrainian men, stand up. You're going over here to hold the Eastern approaches, to Hostomel, right? Which was a major battle area. So if you showed up as a Westerner and you found a guy in that unit who could speak English and you say, hey, I got U.S. Army experience, which is true or not, right? They would take you. And we found a lot of these guys. The word that we used for them were freelancers. Freelancers did not have a contract with the Ukrainian government. They were not part of a Ukrainian army unit. They were part of these territorial defense militia units. James Vasquez was a freelancer with a very important unit, that TDU, as we called them, in the northeast of Kiev actually did what were called secondary sweeps. The primary uh, Ukrainian army unit of veterans would just smashed the Russians. These Russians would run into the woods or they'd spread out in these villages. The TDUs were brought forward to do secondary sweeps. And, of course, they would engage any Russians that they see. This was not unlethal combat. This was very lethal combat. And what I found funny about that New York Times article, they were saying there's Americans on the battlefield with easy access to weapons. Well, yes, because it's a war. And in the war, they have arsenals of weapons that they hand out to individuals to fight. So James Vasquez was in that, the Bovary region, where there was this big Russian attack to the northeast of Kiev and was part of stopping that. Now, whether, you know, he was did one day, 10 days, 50 days, he was in mortal danger every minute that he was there. But did he lie about his U.S. Army service? Yes, he did, apparently. I didn't know about it you know, because he was an internet sensation. I was in the Legion. The Legion is a contracted battalion of the Ukrainian army. And we're not a territorial defense unit, even though they use that for the territorial defense Ukraine. You are an army battalion, regular army, made up of people from 52 countries. At that time, we were really vetting for combat experience, right? You had to have had some sort of, you know, pointy shooty thing there and we could pretty much figure out if you were you know faking it but we still got guys come in found a kid from australia turned out to be a magnificent mg3 machine gunner big tall aussie and i was just like wow you're like a natural well he could shoot but he had never fired a machine gun and i go were you in the australian army he goes no i said what army he goes no army (laughs) and i go but you're a god on this machine gun we never pulled him Okay, this guy, once he learned that weapon system, he was reliable. He had been bombarded for three months in bunkers that we had up on the zero line. So I wasn't sending him back. He was now a blooded combat veteran. So, you know, but it's unfortunate. I tried to help where I could um, when Vasquez had issues, when some other guys had issues. You know, I'm senior NCO. I got to step up and help what we call soldier care and just make sure we had two suicides when I was there. And, I, you know, we started to really watch the mental health, how much time they spent on the zero line, how much artillery they took, and, uh, you know, rotate guys out and, and try to give them real Western combat senior leadership. Uh, we had a sergeant major who was a Brit, great guy. He's now a sniper in my in third battalion legion. Uh, but, you know, you still have a Ukrainian officer structure over you that has a very Ukrainian mindset, which is sort of... We call it the Cossack mindset, right? Throw your mustache and swirl your saber over your head and <laughs> let's go. And, you know, we're like, hey, hey, intelligence planning. You know, first, what's over there? And, you know, how we're going to move? And maybe we should look at terrain. So, um, you know, that that's pretty much how we, each of these kind of groups operated. Freelancers were just out there shooting stuff and then contracted Legionnaires I have a lot more structure
0: so you wind up eyeball to eyeball with russian forces
1: yes yeah oh yeah
0: <laughs> and your and your impression of them
1: is oh god i will tell you exactly what i saw in the first russian uh trench line that we took uh well, it was what well, was more of a facility uh it was an old science center it had trenches dug all around it and as we were patrolling through this place we come upon this, obviously, a tactical operations center, a talk, right, for the officers. It's dug in, it's got sandbags, but underneath the sandbags are four brand new in-box washing machines. The washing machine thing about them stealing washing machines is not an anecdote. And I guess in most of Russia, they still use the Soviet commune washing so if you're a wealthy person you have a washing machine wouldn't believe it filthy conditions of their facilities and their and their fighting pit filthy i would say like a pig but pigs are clean uh, they lived in their own feces they, uh, they could not throw a wrapper away without throwing it right down where they would sleep uh they would sleep on top of each other in the places where men were killed Uh, they would leave the bodies they they were just famous for never taking a body off the battlefield we had to police up their bodies we had carry extra you know body bags for them uh and they were just you know like lord of the rings what they say, they're orcs they are soulless they are there for money that's all they have nothing ideological i mean i've i help work over not work over i help interrogate in a proper geneva convention abiding manner Um, One guy from the Democratic, uh, you know, People's Republic of Donetsk, whatever they wanted to call it, and then two Russian army soldiers. And these guys were looking at me like, wow, they they make guys like you. We only seen you in the cartoons. They were just from very far flung regions of Russia. And they they were just there to make money, steal what they could. Uh, We found guys with wads of cash. We found. Could they read? Mm -hmm. Could they read? Yes, they can read. They're educated. They're just ignorant. <laughs> you know, there's a big difference, and they saw it as an economic opportunity. You ask them, they said, "Why are you here?" It's like, "Well, I thought I could earn an- enough money to get a car or to do this." And the Ukrainians were, were very treated them very well, and said, "Well, you know, your your whole squad is dead." And he's like, "Well, you know, you know, I thought I could still or get something out of it," and the just mindset was they did not believe in humanity. And- it, Are someone... these
0: kids, what what age are we talking? Is this the 17, 18, 19? Yeah, is this...
1: the kids were were young, but we had two sets of guys that we had to deal with. The original invaders, right? That was the professional force of the Russian army. And we slaughtered them. That's just the only word I can say, all right? The Javelin missile is the greatest system we ever gave to anybody, right? Those guys thought they were going to be the, con- you, know, choo, 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 you know, come in and come in like the Nazi columns into France. Didn't happen. So we killed a mass of their real professional army. Virtually 75% of it is the estimate right now. Then were the conscripts and, you know, who were on contract, but they were there supposed to be there for 30, 60 days. The Rose Guardia guys, those are the civil defense guys, civil National Guard kind of guys who were like minimal equipment, all that stuff. They were young. The regular army was in their 20s and higher. The officer corps was mid 30s to 50s, you know, but one thing we they learned very quickly, they will die just as fast as an 18 year old. They just didn't understand why they were fighting.
0: How do you evaluate the Ukrainian officers and Ukrainian NCOs in their armed forces?
1: I'm so glad you asked me that question. You know, I tried to, before I when I was at MSNBC in those weeks before I left MSNBC, they weren't really using me for Ukraine coverage. And I was like pulling my hair out. I had just been to the Avdivka, which is the forwardmost battle post of Ukraine in the 2014 to 2022 war. And there I got briefed by the two men that are running this war, General Sierski and General Pavliok. General Pavliuk is now commander of Ukrainian armed forces. General Sersky and him are rotating that job. One guy takes the front. The other guy takes the back. And um, these guys, as soon as I saw him, and I said this on one of my podcasts, I play a clip where he's being interviewed by a CNN journalist. The CNN journalist is asking inane questions. And this guy goes, they go, hey, if you're attacked from the east, what are you going to do? He goes, we're going to fight him. Well, what if they attack from the south? They take Kyrgyzstan and they come up. He goes, we're going to fight him. He says, what if they attack from the north? Part? He goes, I don't care what direction they're coming. I'm going to fight them. And I said, that is straight up Chosin Reservoir right here. We're surrounded. We can attack in any direction. And I instantly knew. I said, this man can't be beat. He can't be beat. He's a NATO-style officer. His mindset is, bring it on. You come here, dead man. This guy and General Tierski, who was the commander of the army, they had this mind. They're not even five six, five seven. both these guys. But I knew... I was looking at a historical figure. I mean, like, it's like hanging with Patton. This guy was calm, measured. I'm going to kick Russia's ass. And these two men and the other generals did just that. And the Ukrainian Army Corps is professional. Some of the territorial units need to be spooled up a little more. Um, My battalion commander in 1st Battalion Legion was a, a veteran of Iraq with the U.S. multinational peacekeeping, with the multinational force in Iraq, spoke fluent English, had gone to U.S. Army schools, Um, you know. So the officer corps was great, but they had created a senior enlisted corps made up of all their saltiest, oldest, old guys. And when I went through, I was part of the director of intelligence's, they had a paramilitary program. I went through their training, and we went to the javelin school. And the guy that ran the javelin school had these completely faded BDUs, He had his hat styled like a U.S. Army guy. And if you saw him on the street, you'd say, hey, why is that U.S. Army soldier on this Ukrainian base? This guy was salty. His students, by the time I went through that course, had racked up 2,500 tank kills. And, you know, and he just looked like a U.S. Army soldier. He'd been working with them for almost a decade. And I was just like, this guy's got more kills than anyone in Ukraine. So the point is is that this new enlisted core of the ukrainian army acted just like our nco corps and it's murdering russians it really i mean we we take losses i just lost my team leader who was a polish special forces officer had been in ukraine from 2017 fighting with the ukrainian army and you know took his last ambush on you know last friday and, and is going to be christened a hero of ukraine but a, a lot of guys for every one guy that's killed there's nine guys that are getting a world of combat experience
0: Malcolm when when you look at this situation as it as it is today what weapons do they not have that mm. this country needs to provide the ukrainians
1: yeah I, you know i have some you know you and i have worked at at various levels near the national command authority and you know, as I, I look at it from the deck plates up, uh, by the way, all all the food in the White House is cooked by Navy Chiefs. Um, the the one thing that I realize is is that the National Security Council, with Jake Sullivan, who is not a practitioner, I am a practitioner of the intelligence arts, and I have been for over almost forty years now. And when I see a requirement, it's not because I'm considering what my opponent, might think about it. I'm considering it from a practitioner's level. I need to kill artillery from as far away as possible. What do the experts say? Now, General Austin has been just fabulous in this war. Everything the Ukrainians ask for, he presents it to the White House, but sometimes he has to tell the Ukrainians what he needs. Um, Very early on, when I made my announcement on April 18th on television, on Joy Reid's show, that I had left the Legion, I left this, sorry, I left MSNBC. The last thing I said in that interview, a lot of people don't remember. I I had said, and Mr. President, I'm speaking straight to you. We need the high mobility multiple rocket launch system. And it took about six weeks for that debate to actually filter up to the Secretary of Defense. And I was going, we need 50 today, right? But there's a, a spooling in period. None of this stuff is just, something you can give the Ukrainians tomorrow. They have to know how to drive it. HIMARS is one of those things that takes you a week to learn, right? They're skilled at using rockets. But integrating that rocketry with the intelligence against not Ukrainian or Russian Army troops, there was a week there that 28 ammunition dumps blew up, just sitting there cooking and smoking, and suddenly they're blowing up like clockwork that is integrating us intelligence uh, i like to say shout out to my boys at national geospatial intelligence agency and ukrainian rockets and all the ukrainians need is a 10 digit grid on where to park your truck and a 10 digit grid for where x rocket will fly and things will blow up so it's a it's a we have a unity of force the russians don't have so we can precisely use a surgeon's cut on the aorta of their logistics pipeline and watch them slowly bleed out. And that's what happened in Kyrgyzstan when we took the city of Kyrgyzstan. And it definitely happened up in Kharkiv, where, where I was operating at on the Kharkiv offensive.
0: Now, just yesterday, two of your close friends, uh, Tucker Carlson and Glenn 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 uh, Greenwald, were, were on Tucker's show. And Glenn Greenwald was making the point that the Ukrainian army uh, is a conscript army, uh, that there's not popular support in Ukraine uh, for the Ukrainian position. Uh, Zelensky is a mad dictator of some measure, uh, and with his iron fist, um, you have unrelenting Ukrainian casualties uh, forced upon Ukraine by the United States government. And I thought I'd give you a chance to respond to to that specifically and those two directly. Um, (laughs) Has to be frustrating as an American putting it all on the line to see Russian television come on and see two American stooges on it.
1: Yeah, you know what? What do we... (laughs) First of all, I didn't know this was a comedy show. Okay. I'm, I'm shocked and laughing. All right. Uh, Tucker Carlson is—he's—he's he's the Lord ha Haw, you know, of of this war. He's the Tokyo Rose. Why don't
0: um, why don't you tell why don't why don't you tell everyone who Lord ha Haw is? And and that that's
1: who he is. Correct. He, we're not he, over we're not overstating it, are we? No. He's he is a he is a a true believer propagandist. What we know about Tokyo Rose is that she was she was forced into that. I think the Lord Haw Haw went along with it. He was right. British. It was a British person. Uh, I think he had some, uh, you know, uh, noble blood in him. The Germans propped him up as the voice of uh, to speak to the to the British and American soldier in Europe, and he was captured at the end of the war and hung as a traitor. Um, but his voice was used as the the official mouthpiece towards, you know, the British, like oh, your U.S. soldiers are over here whining and dining your wives and trying to insert what we call the weapon of doubt uh, when we use propaganda warfare. Um, But Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson is a warm, electric, comfy blanket around Vladimir Putin's posterior, okay? It doesn't actually affect us, but it makes Putin feel good, right? Um, You know, we hear it, we know he is a mouthpiece for a a foreign hostile dictator who wants to take over parts of the world. We know that. So Tucker Carlson has placed that box around him. It's just that he has the liberty of the First Amendment of the United States to allow him to say any stupid thing that he wants to say, which, by the way, i fought my entire life to allow him to say all the stupid things he's saying right now. Now, within Ukraine, it's another matter. Let me explain something. Same with Glenn Greenwald. I, don't, I hope these two yahoos keep telling the Russians these things, because if the Russians think we're about to break, then they got another thing coming. Look, the Russians know that they're being slaughtered, and I use the word slaughter. I don't use it indiscriminately here. I 200, use it at, is 200,000 the right number, you suspect? Right now, the number is 167,500 or something like that, but don't forget, they invaded with 175,000 men their professional army is gone and when they say hey it's 10 to 1 15 to 1 shooting against the russians i could show you a bunch of videos of guys who stood up against us and had a very bad day all right what we call them is dead zeds right z uh dead zeds are were the ones i went up against i thought we were dealing with amateurs they were the vdv the airborne force (laughs) we were like Really? Because I'm eating your excellent special forces VDV MREs. Uh, You know, the Ukrainians have good capability on the ground. Some environments where the Russians have artillery superiority, no one's going to do well in that. Right. I don't like being bombarded. But the Russians have to put down a thousand rounds for every Excalibur round that the Ukrainians have that will kill whatever you just aimed it at. Same thing with HEMARS. The Russians are terrified of HIMARS um, because it will hit within three feet of whatever we aim it at, which is generally ten little numbers. And Where, th- where Malcolm, where is this war in September? Well, let me give you a prediction because last year, um, after the Battle of Kiev, I felt something was going wrong in the Russian command. And I was asked to do, to represent the Legion by teleconference, to talk at Davos for the economic summit uh, as part of four fighters in Ukraine. And I had made a prediction. I said, by September 2022, Russia will no longer have um, real offensive power. And they said, well, what does that mean? I means we're going to hit them somewhere by September 2022, and we're going to break their back. We're going to break their ability to ever throw another major offensive, and people thought eh, that's a little that's a little pie in the sky. But I could feel it; you could see by the numbers that by the time they reached September, they were going to be really bad. I think we were hitting towards to a hundred thousand dead at that point. And then what happened? The Kharkiv counteroffensive, which I was part of, the first units that were kilometers, in, you know, uh, behind Russian lines. We hit them with an iron fist. It was like D-Day. We had tanks move up into our AO over 12 hours nonstop. Hundreds of tanks that we didn't see anywhere before. They materialized. And we realized Russia's getting hit with all the offensive power of Ukraine in the north. And I don't think they know what's coming. And they didn't. We hit our our D plus three. That's our 72-hour objectives by lunch of the first day we hit our weak objectives by lunch of the second day we rolled through them like a like a hot scythe, right through butter a hot knife through butter and we took over 300 cities uh, 300 villages six cities towns that i didn't think we would ever take right on the russian border the russians collapsed and then while they were looking at themselves getting punched in the nose and bleeding and checking themselves in a the mirror we counterattacked and them down in Kherson and took Kyrgyzstan, half of Kyrgyzstan province, and the city of Kyrgyzstan. They just don't seem to understand that the battle tempo is an initiative, is always dominated by the Ukrainians. This war is going at a speed. By September, I think by July, I think there will be three offensives this year. There will be an offensive in April, May, I think there will be an offensive in July, and then there will be another offensive in September, October. Because we will have the throw weight of even more modern technology, boatloads more precision rounds, maybe even fighter aircraft lobbing Dams with little flying wings. And the uh, MLRS, the, the, the HIMARS, is getting a new missile called, you know, the uh, small diameter glided bomb, which extends its range about a third further than where it's going. But the bomb actually flies like an airplane and can hit things they just can't hit now. If... We were given the ATACMS missile. That is the single giant unit rocket that goes in the HIMARS. We could reach double the range we're hitting now. Nothing would be safe in the Russian area of operations. And we would start terrifying them that they're going to be cut off. You know, Crimea will be separated from southern Kyrgyzstan and that the Russians in an offensive down there won't be able to get back to Crimea. So I think that psychologically... The U.S. should just give up these weapons. Uh, Jake Sullivan needs to stop this, you know, political stuff of it'll it'll antagonize antagonize the Russians. Everything antagonizes the Russians. They're they're not going to go to a nuke. And if they do, nothing you do or give the Ukrainians would stop them. We've been waiting for that since last August. I've been carrying chem bio gear since last August because we assume the Russians are going to hit us with chemicals first and at worst. Maybe they do something insane, like blow up the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant structure uh, complex. But the Russians are losing so bad; we're taking hits. Their little micro offensive down in Bakhmut—it's a micro offensive. If Bakhmut falls, they get, a, they get a destroyed town, but we will have killed over three or four thousand Russians.
0: What does this final border look like, Malcolm, mm. as it's
1: drawn? A permanent armistice. If you look up in in Kharkiv and Sumy sections of Ukraine, the Russians are already building new border defensives that are almost World War One, World War Two in their in their structure. Dragon's teeth, sticks you know, like a five hundred meters deep, six rows, and they're setting their final border so that Ukraine won't do an offensive into Russia and take a, like a Russian city like Belgorod. You know, and the Russians, I think, are falling back to their original borders. We took them in my province. We we took them right up to the border. And uh the Russians just can't defend it. And they're they really are looking for the goodwill of the Ukrainians uh for their future borders. Because if we beat Russia this year, and when I say beat, I don't mean every guy, every tank, I mean the offensive power, the command and control of the Russian army's ends to where. They can only do any, all they can do is fall back and, and do defensive fight. Then the, the army that that invaded right now doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. We killed it. What Everything that's coming now is just trash. But, you know, when 20 guys run at you, you get tired doing this. So, you know, that's all that Russia has in its advantage now is trying to wear us out.
0: When you look at this, you think the Chinese think twice about Taiwan in the aftermath of this? Yeah,
1: I certainly hope so, uh, because it just shows, uh, you know, I've said this 100 times, too. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. And the Ukrainians, they got fight. These guys, they got guts. They're fighting for their their kids, their wives, their families who are behind them. And, you know, they they actually make these decisions. I've seen circumstances where one guy will hold a p- defensive position and, and fight to the end uh, to get his wounded teammates and everybody out. They are, they're, this is their land. They love it. They are fighting for it. The Russians are thinking, I'm going to move forward through a minefield for a washing machine or what I can get out of that burning house over there. Or maybe that babushka who's dead in the street there, maybe she has some jewelry. That's not a joke. I've seen it. So um, I think China is going to have to think about that. If they think that losing a million men in an amphibious landing that gets slaughtered on the beach because the Chinese, you know, the Taiwanese have, you know, bought, they're buying MLRS and HIMARS out left and right. You know, drone squadrons of thousands and thousands of little drones, but China can put up two million men to invade that country. It's a question of what they think the price is. Um, in fact, we've actually been asked, people have been asked, could they stand up an international legion for the defense of Taiwan? And that's a possibility. But I think China's looking at it like, we don't wanna be the global pariahs, we would just rather sell TVs.
0: Well, at 52, I was I was 19 when the Cold War ended when the Berlin Wall came down. In those days, the talk was of the peace dividend, and certainly, it's the case. Thirty years on, the peace is over. So when you look at it ahead, of the decade to come, uh, United States Navy, you know today about two hundred ninety-five ships. Uh, we need to have a five hundred ship navy uh, between manned and uh, and unmanned unmanned vehicles. Uh, we have no Arctic capability, uh, such as it speaks. We haven't we haven't made a icebreaker. Uh, in the United States and Canada in a very long time. When when you look out ahead um, mm-hmm. over the next two decades, uh, from what you've seen, and and what I agree with you is the front line for democratic survival. And I think we agree also that you know the fundamental reality is that so long as Russia is losing that war in Ukraine, it's almost impossible for them to expand that war outside of Ukraine. Okay. Um, yeah. But but in the immediate future, um, at a time of uh, strained budgets, uh, astounding as this is, may seem to say, we're going to need a larger military, we're going to yep. need more ships, bigger air force, um, the mythological American fighting man of the special operator variety uh, who kicks into wars like a superhero uh, is not how you win the war that's coming between great powers. Um, so talk about that, Malcolm. Um, when you talked in the beginning you know, the Spanish civil war in, in the 1930s was a preview, uh, very much of, of what was to come as was the, uh, Japanese aggression in China in the right. mid 1930s, the American volunteers who, who fought, um, You know, we're not necessarily at the end of something or even at the beginning of the end of something. We don't know over the next 15 to 20 years what Ukraine metastasizes into, uh, Mm -hmm. what Russia's ambitions are. And should Vladimir Putin not survive, I think there's this American default to, well, a good guy takes his place. Well, Mm -hmm. we all know that. Uh, Could be someone much more dangerous and, and, and much worse. Uh, and so talk about some of that, you know, as you look at ahead the decade to come, you know, from this from this
1: experience, eyeball to eyeball with Russian forces in Ukraine. Well, yeah, speak, I'm glad you asked that question. Speaking of Russian eyeball, eyeball to eyeball with the Russians, I have a boxing dummy downstairs wearing a full kit of Russian army uniform and a gear that I took off that we took off of the Russians. Right. That is a metaphor for what we can expect from the Russians in the future. We're gonna eat their lunch, literally, um, if they ever step outside their boundaries again. Their army is decimated. Now, China, on the other hand, is a maritime power. Um, I, I think someone said that the Chinese are building this year the equivalent of several fleets of European ships. Um, that One of the things that I, I might disagree with you with, because I'm a, I'm a student of sea power, I have been a student of sea power since I was 18. Um, and well, before that, I was a sea cadet, 15. So um, Jim Stavridis in his great book, Fiction 2032, spells out what happens if the United States loses technological edge and the Chinese beat us at the semiconductor war and can turn off our internet and our things like that and sink carriers, which terrifies me. I've written on carriers. You can't sync those things. But we're going into a World War II pre-Pearl Harbor style of domination of waters It's and in, in controlling lanes of sea power and, um, you know, uh, and, and controlling lines of communication for shipping. I don't think we need a 500-ship Navy. I think I need a 350-400-ship Navy that can sink a 500-ship Navy right i'm i'm a big advocate now of throwing lots of missiles uh full disclosure most people probably never had this happen in their career i had two seminal events in desert storm i was on the uss Tripoli, and we struck a sea mine it's i mean believe me we knew it we hit it it was an old world war ii style iraqi contact mine boom put a helicopter carrier out of out of commission Two years before, I was in what was called the Battle of Siri Island uh, in 1988, where I was on the USS Wainwright. We were in a missile-to-missile duel at 12 nautical miles, and we almost ate a U.S.-made harpoon missile. And then we sank that ship and made sure nobody survived that battle. The problem is that the Iranians learned from that battle. They stopped sending out ships with one or two missiles. They just bought a thousand Chinese missiles and have blanketed their coast. And they know that if we ever come up there, they're gonna shoot off a thousand, two thousand missiles in an hour. And it's gonna really suck for us. Everyone adapts to their last loss. And the Chinese are thinking, we will overwhelm them with ships. We will overwhelm them with small craft. We have to keep thinking that this is gonna happen in two to three years. Maybe we need to have, you know, what we call the arsenal ship. This concept came up in the 1980s. I remember reading about it in the Naval Institute proceedings. Arsenal ship was a cargo ship where you just remove the containers and you put in 500 vertical launch missiles. Um, We don't have a seaplane to pick up downed pilots. And they're trying to reinvent the wheel by putting up, you know, pontoons on a C-130. The Japanese have a flying boat. They've been flying for 40 years. That's fabulous with triple the range. So we have to start thinking in the Pacific Island hopping the way the Marines are thinking now of dominating areas through integrated intelligence, integrated communications and networking and taking a Humvee that's got four anti-ship missiles on it. That can also be used against shore targets and then surface to air missile defense and that might be 12 guys if we have 500 of those teams but how do you feed them you got to have logistics ships and we're not building those <laughs> really carriers we're building f-18s when we should be building drones top gun was right the future is coming and maverick's not in it so these are the things we need to become more revolutionary because the chinese are becoming revolutionary the turks have built a carrier-based drone. Why don't we go rebuild that? You know, they're building it probably for like a million each, two million each. But we've just seen that every person in the U.S. Army had better have a drone that could drop a grenade. You know, I'm buying those things for the Ukrainians now. I mean, I have a bomber squadron in my uh, battalion and that neutralizes. We had Our our brigade destroyed five T-90 tanks with hand grenades dropped from a drone.
0: Now, will you return to Ukraine, Malcolm? Or
1: yeah, that so concluded. Yeah, I was just asked to return to my battalion. We lost a very, very senior leader, and we're having um, an identity crisis. And, and I'm sort of the old, crusty, you know, senior NCO, sergeant major, whatever you called. And I'm working now at a at a much higher level. I'm I'm working with some people that are at operating at the Ministry of Defense level. But yeah, I'll be back in Ukraine uh, one way or the other. You know, if if something really bad happens, you know, I'm the kind of guy I can't. The reason I went to Ukraine is I couldn't look in the mirror and say, well, I'm going to go on air and I'm going to point arrows at this tank and that tank and identify things as the explainer. Uh, I'm a practitioner. I'm 61. I'm um, <laughs> but the first guy to die in the Legion in May of last year was 65, and the Ukrainian army is now recruiting up to 65. Because a lot of those old guys want to fight. Um, but they haven't even fully nationally mobilized in Ukraine. But, the, you know, it just depends if there's something bad happens. But I'm supporting Ukraine every day. I'm up at three in the morning talking to my battalion logistics. My, my battalion commander calls me all the time. Uh, we have to arrange for a funeral now in Warsaw. So, you know, I'm fully integrated with the, with the organization every day. And what, what are your impressions of
0: President Zelensky?
1: oh, man. man, that guy's a leader. That guy's a leader. I mean, he is really the Churchill of this age. Um, you know, that whole, <laughs> the video that, I didn't hear about the I don't want to ride, you know, I, I want ammo uh, for a couple of days. But what I saw was the video he put out on Twitter with him, Mr. Reznikov, Zalushi, and other guys in the senior cabinet with a, with a phone in the middle of uh you know of of um Maon going like gangster looking down on the phone is like we're here and we're killing your special forces you said to catch us and I was like this guy ain't going nowhere mm-hmm. all right this guy is a commander in war he's a Churchill and what I find funny is the people here in the United States were like oh he's a Brooke and he's a lot of these marjorie taylor green idiots and it's like you don't recognize leadership that's how bad you are you want tribalism you want donald trump to be you know the the job of the hut of your of your world and com- give spit out commands and you you go slither behind him and, and and do what he wants that's a totalitarian dictatorship right i have you know i'm from philadelphia okay i've I'm an originalist. I believe in what, you know, the the trials of George Washington. You read his pain belabored letters and you're like, God damn, this man's a (laughs) leader, you know, and he's just putting out squabbles and, you know, letting people do plots to kill him, things like that. And then you find out he still bought Charles Lee in, who we would later find 76 years later was a traitor. And, you know, had written an entire battle plan for the British to give them everything. You know, so very weird how, how this all comes out. But Zelensky, it's the Washington of Ukraine. He saved this nation. He's, Or maybe he's the better the Lincoln combo of Churchill-Lincoln. I just hope that nothing happens to him. But you know what? If something happens to him, all the Ukrainians will do is find the next commander and follow in his lead.
0: I think one thing we completely agree on is that I would assess it, that we live in an idiocracy, an age of, of stupidity. What do you want to say to folks out there uh, who might happen upon this uh, on uh, some algorithmic chance? Um, What do you want to say to them about the lie they're fed from Tucker Carlson Mm -hmm from Glenn Greenwald, from Vladimir Putin, about this war, this criminal war, taking place in 2023.
1: I'll tell you something. I, I, I often use this analogy because it's so, so deeply, deeply personal to me. And that building behind you on there, on the other side of that steeple, is Washington Square in Philadelphia. And it's Washington Square was not a square for Washington. It was actually a black cemetery on the edge of, of Philadelphia, of downtown Philadelphia. And Washington's there. Uh, there's a monument to Washington there, but it's actually the first tomb of the unknown soldier. There are 1,200 Revolutionary War soldiers who died of disease buried right behind that building. And one of the on the top of the monument, there is a saying that freedom is a light for which many men have died in darkness. And what I would say, and I believe, oh my God, I believe that saying. Washington was a brilliant man. But more importantly, he understood that the nation had to be brought together and our common foe, the British, had to be fought. But there were many people in the country who historically were waiting to see how it turned out. Right? You know, like they wouldn't take they wouldn't take newly minted American money, they wouldn't take continental dollars or or vouchers. You had to pay them in pounds sterling. And with with regards to how America is devolving from that, I say to the Tucker Carlson, to the people more importantly, to the people who believe them. My family, the Nance family, has had a Nance from 1864 to, well, technically today serving democracy serving as as people who believe in it maybe as freed slaves and descendants we understand what the common good you know the commonwealth means it's not socialism it means we work together as american citizens and my family chose to defend that over the last 150 years with their lives i believe in it deeply especially as an old navy chief right i I espouse the values of not just my Navy, but my constitution and, and, and everything that comes with your oath. So you, some of these people need to decide, are they totalitarians or are they Americans? And I, I, I meet guys who were in the armed forces and they were like, you liberals, we're going to kill you guys. It's like, are you American at all? If this country were attacked, would you side with our enemy? Because you're siding with a dictator who is mass murdering children. You know, and I try to introduce again what we what we call the weapon of doubt. Tell me when people come to me, they yell at me. It's like, oh, you're that MSNBC guy. I go, no, I'm a I'm a real patriot. I love this country. I will die for this country. I have almost died for this country in the U.S. Armed Forces, but with pleasure. Right, My niece, I'll give you a quick story. My niece was a cook in the Navy. On her first cruise on her ship, she was involved in a missile attack, right? And they had her in the kitchen with a eighteen years old with a fire hose and a and a fire bunker there. And she didn't understand why they were off Yemen, having missiles lobbed in her. But she knew, the, the, the woman behind her on the hose and the guy on the front of it and the chief in Damage Control Central, that's us. We're Americans, and whoever's coming at us is coming at us. How have we lost that with the Republican Party? I used to be a Republican. I was a Colin Powell, National Security strong, socially liberal guy. I'm down in the lower left quadrant now of the X, Y axis, you know, next to, you know, next to people who have decided they actually can govern. But we, this, there's something wrong. The values are broke, and I'm, I'm sick of seeing people who call themselves veterans who say that they're loyal to the Constitution and wave the "We the People" flag. You obviously, you're in an idiocracy. You don't even know what that means. "We the People" means all of us, even you who say stupid things on Fox News and talk. Pretty damn near the treason, but I'm smart enough to know treason's the only crime in the Constitution and we have to be at war. So what you have is free speech, stupid free speech, but you still have it. They think that we should all take it away from everyone other than them. I call that a constitutional autocracy, the trappings of America. That's what they want. I'm not going to let them have it. That's why I'm back. I'm back to help defend the Western Wall of democracy.
0: Malcolm Nance, we leave it there. Good to be oh, with you. Well,
1: it's my pleasure. I'm glad you had the, you know, I'm glad you had, the, you know, uh, the picture of Philadelphia there with Independence Hall. I love it. Good to see you, Malcolm. My pleasure. <laughs>